So <clears throat> one of the first things you'll notice as, as you were looking through this passage, as we were reading it through together, is there is a recurring theme in the passage. Um, and that recurring theme is this idea of rewards. You'll see in verse 1, uh, verse 4, verse 6 and verse 18 um, that Jesus keeps on referring to rewards. I've always found this idea of rewards in the Bible um, and how Jesus often uses rewards to be a very, very confusing thing. Because you've probably heard the expression before, virtue is its own reward. And normally we think that if we're doing something for a reward, it kind of takes away the moral worth or the moral good of that thing that you're doing. So at first sight, it's very strange that Jesus keeps saying, keeps using rewards as a motivator. What is this reward all about? I've heard sermons before um, when the pastor has said, it's kind of been a joke really, and they've said, you know, when they get to heaven, you know, it's the poor little lady who was doing all the cleaning and she ends up in heaven in a Mercedes and then she meets the pastor of the church and the pastor's on a little push bike. Um, and, and you wonder if that is, is the reward that we're going for as Christians. Is that what we're trying to aim for? Um, I guess the world that we live in is a very uh, competitive world, isn't it? In the world of work and there's performance-related pay. Janet will know she's a GP about quaff and all the targets that you go for. Go for. Um, but is that what we're doing as Christians? Are we trying to earn points so we're getting a better reward, even if it's in heaven? Are we trying to get the Mercedes in heaven um, where other people are just going to get a bike? Now, there is a reality um, to the fact that the Bible talks repeatedly about rewards. It talks again and again about rewards, especially in the New Testament. And, and the symbol or the sign uh, of a reward is often described as a crown. It talks about a crown. It says, um, it talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, it talks about an imperishable crown. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, it talks about the crown of rejoicing. There's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy. And there's the crown of glory and the crown of life. So there's all this talk about crowns. So maybe if it's not a heavenly Mercedes we're trying to get, um, maybe we're trying to get a decent crown, a hefty golden crown. Maybe that's what we're aiming for, rather than having a tissue paper crown, like a Christmas cracker one, which is probably what I'm heading for. Um, <laughs> um, but you know what? The Bible says... The Bible says in Revelation, it says in Revelation uh, chapter 4, it says that when the 24 elders uh, get to heaven, that they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast down their crowns before the throne. They cast down their thrones as they're met with Jesus and they see him in his glory and beauty, all that they want to do is just chuck those crowns away. They're crowns that he gave us himself anyway. Um, we have nothing to give him, but he gave us these crowns and they cast them down before him. So this idea of rewards. 
So if, if the reward is, I mean, there is a reality. I'm not denying that the Bible talks about rewards in terms of crowns and that there will be some kind of heavenly reward. We know that from the Bible. But what Jesus is getting at here, I think, in this passage, that the reward that we're seeking for is not so much a what, but a who. And if you remember the context of this, John was talking about this last week. If you look at the Beatitudes um, in uh, Matthew 5 and verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. And this is the tenor of the whole Bible. The tenor of the whole Bible is that God himself is the reward. If you just turn with me, just turn in your Bibles, just briefly, to Genesis um, chapter 15 um, and uh, verse 1. And you remember here that um, Abraham, is, he's in a desperate position. He, he's childless. Um, he hasn't got any descendants. And in those times, to be childless and to be barren uh, was a very serious thing. This was his lineage, his future. And he just saw how everything was going to end if he didn't have a child. And he was in a desperate state. But the first thing that God says to him in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Because the thing is, the reward of the Father is the Father. The reward of the Father is the Father. Not what the Father can give us, but the Father himself. And so often I think we're thinking, well, do I, is that really a good reward? Is that really the thing that I want? Do I want God? What does it mean to want more of God? What does that mean? But the thing is, you were created for God. That was the thing you were created for, to know God, to love God, to experience God. That's the purpose you were put on this earth, relationship with God. That's the reason. Um, St. Augustine, you've probably heard of St. Augustine. And he said, centuries ago, he said, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find themselves in you. Until our hearts find themselves in God, they're restless and they're empty. Nothing else will fill. No relationship, no career, nothing. Nothing can fulfill that void. Nothing compares to Jesus. Nothing compares to the peace and the joy that he offers. Experiencing him, experiencing him. It says in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, which is one of these probably very boring documents that people used to use to teach people about, about the Bible. Um, and it says that the chief end of man, the chief end, the reason we were created was to know God and to enjoy him forever. To know God and to enjoy him forever. And often the Bible talks about this joy, this joy which is associated 
with the presence of God. In, in Psalms it says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasure, joy and delight in the presence of God. And that's what we're going for. That's what we want our aim to be. More of God. Not We can't have more of God in the sense of God isn't a quantity that we, can, that we can have more of God. But we can press into deeper relationship with God. We can come to a place where we're enjoying him in a more intimate and a deep way. And as we do that, that's when we find that the joy and that the peace comes because God is the source of all those things. So the reward of the Father is our increased capacity to enjoy God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, you may have heard of Jonathan Edwards, um, but he was basically um, a Puritan, uh, he was the last of the Puritans really, um, and uh, he, he was a preacher at the time of the, um, of the first Great Awakening in America, and he talked about people having different capacities to enjoy God. And he said this, it's a great quote, he said, every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. I wonder whether this morning, you're, or me as well, I'm talking about myself, are we a thimbleful? Can we just be filled up to be a thimbleful? Or are we an ocean full? Is there a whole ocean there of the joy of God and of the peace of God? Um, how do we move from being just a thimbleful of God's joy to being a bathful, to being a lakeful, to being an oceanful? And really that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, we've established what that reward of the Father is. And that's what Jesus talks about. And he really just talks in this um, passage about three simple ways that we can enlarge our happiness in God. Three simple ways that we can enlarge our happiness in God. And the first thing, if we look at verses 1 to 4, the first thing uh, that Jesus says about the reward of the Father is he says, the reward of the Father belongs to those who give without the fanfare. They give without the fanfare. The first thing, look at the first two, two verses. Jesus says, take Heed, take heed, watch out, watch out. Why does he say that? The Bible says that Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus knows what the natural bent of our heart is. I often think of our hearts as a bit like a shopping trolley. I don't know why, but whenever I go to Asda, I always pick the dud trolley. You know, the one that's got the bent wheel and the one that just like veers off like this, and then you're kind of knocking over small children before you know it. <laughs> but Jesus says, Jesus says, take heed, because he says, our hearts are like that shopping trolley. Our hearts naturally veer off. And what they veer off towards is self-glorification and conceit. So, so, so often, we start off doing something good. We start off with good motives, but because of the way our hearts are, it's very soon corrupted. Something that's beautiful and positive soon becomes something ugly and corrupted. Just take an example. Maybe you think that you're going to go and help 
on a Thursday, Thursday evening, I don't know when they do it, on a Thursday evening, you're going to go and help the homeless. You're going to do the homeless ministry. And you think, yes, I'm going to do the homeless ministry. And the reason I'm going to do the homeless ministry is because I want to serve Christ and um, because I want to practically help people. Isn't that a great reason to do the homeless ministry? But over time, what you might find happening is that that good desire suddenly becomes a desire to be elevated in the eyes of everybody else. Perhaps you want to um, curry favour with, with people in the church. Perhaps what eventually starts to happen is you think, what I really want to do is I want to feature on the church website. So you just think, if I just serve the homeless, I can feature on the church website. You know, and every, every time people click on Servants Church, they'll see me there serving the homeless. But Jesus says, that's what our hearts are like. That's what our hearts are like. That's why we have to watch our motives. That's why we have to take heed. Take heed. Um, And what's very, very sobering here, if you look in the second part of verse 6, is Jesus says that you'll have no reward from your Father. No reward. It's not just the fact that the reward is diminished or that the reward is reduced if you do it for these reasons, you actually lose the reward itself completely. Zilch. Zero reward. Your cup in God will not be enlarged at all. It's one or the other. Have your reward now, or have your reward now in the eyes of men, or experience the Father's blessing. And you know, God wants to say, God wants to say, don't trade his reward. Don't trade the reward of the Father for the tin pot reward of man. People are very fickle. You may be in favour with people one moment. That could change any time. Do you know what the Bible says about the favour of God? Do you know what the Bible says? about the favour of God. It says, his anger is for a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. His favour lasts a lifetime. Amen. Amen. The favour of God. Do you want the favour of God in your life? Think about Esau. Think about Esau. He He was the heir to the blessing. He was the heir to the blessing. He was the heir to the Father's blessing. He had a glorious future ahead of him. God was going to use him and his line, ultimately, you know, to bring the Saviour, to bring the Messiah. That was his birthright. And yet, what did he trade it for? He traded it for a tin of, maybe not a tin, but he, he traded it for a pot of soup. Don't trade the blessing of the Father Don't trade it for something which is going to satisfy you far less. Something that's not going to really bring that deep satisfaction. Don't trade the Father's blessing for that. So that's verse 6. And then in verse 2 we see uh, Jesus talks there. um, He talks about a trumpet being blown. There's not a lot of evidence actually that a lot of trumpets were blown every time Uh, people gave something but often at the feasts they would blow a trumpet 
Um, and often at the feasts, there would be times when people would give money at feasts. So that may be what this is referring to. Or Jesus may be just using more figurative language. But then he talks about don't do it as the hypocrites do. And the word hypocrite is from the Greek word um, hypocrites. I can't say that. Ollie's studying Greek. Ollie can probably tell you how that's pronounced. But it, it's basically this word, and it's hypocrites. And what it really means is an actor, someone who wears a mask, someone who wears a mask. And that's what these, that's what these people were doing. They were, acting, they were being actors, basically. They were acting like uh, actors, and they were seeking that they would have their glory from men. So although they appeared to be giving to others and giving to God's work, the person they were really giving to was themselves and their own egos. That's what they were doing. It was all a farce. It was all a show. It was just all completely empty. They were hypocrites, actors. But our giving as Christians is to be marked by forgetting, trying to forget about ourselves to the extent where we don't even know what the left or the right hand is doing. It's not about us anymore. It's about not an opportunity for self-congratulation, saying how wonderful am I, but for self-forgetfulness and for giving to God. That's the kind of giving that God will bless. Um, But why? I think it's very interesting to think about this idea of why does giving, why does it increase our ability to enjoy more of the Father? Because the two don't necessarily follow. Well, the reason is, is because God himself is the ultimate giver. That is his nature, to be always giving out. He never needs to take in because he's completely sufficient in himself. So all he's doing all the time is giving out. So he is the ultimate giver. But the reason, we have to understand that the reason we can't have fellowship with God, the reason why sometimes when we pray, it seems like God is a long way away and he's not interested, is this idea that we are not like God, and things that are not alike cannot communicate with one another. So it's a bit like having an ape and an angel in a room. If you had an ape and an angel in the room, they would not be able to communicate with one another. They would not know um, what to say to one another, um, because they have nothing in common. And it's the same issue with our relationship with God. Because we're so morally unlike him, We don't speak the same language as God and therefore that blocks his presence when we're unlike God. We don't enjoy that fellowship with him. Um, So the way we can become more like God is it's as though the ape becomes more like the angel. And to the extent that the ape becomes more like the angel, the ape is able to communicate with the angel. And so to the extent that we become more like Christ to the extent that uh, we give in the way that God gives. We, we, we are more in touch with his heart and therefore we are more able to um, receive from him. We are more able to experience his blessing. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have, we have fellowship with God objectively. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you have fellowship with God. Because the Bible says that Through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you always, if you trust in Christ, you always possess peace with God as a reality, as a a fact. 
but your ability to actually enjoy... You see, Christianity is not just about facts. It is about facts, but it's far more than that. We want to actually get to know God. That's the whole point of it. It's not just about knowing that, in theory, I'm righteous with God. In theory, God loves me. In theory, I have peace with God. It is actually about a degree of feeling or experience. And if we want to experience the blessing of God, then we need to become more like him, to enjoy that fellowship in an experiential way. And that's what God has for us. And as we give in the way that Jesus describes, we're giving like him, because that's how Jesus gave on the cross. As he was crucified there, as his, as his blood was pouring from his hands, he was giving in that way. He didn't have a thought for himself. He was giving for us. And as we become more like Christ, we can enjoy the fellowship of the Father. And that's the reward of the Father. That's what God wants for us. So even when you give, be assured that God sees you giving. God sees you. Even if men don't see you, God will see you giving. You know, sometimes we can do good things, and you've probably had it, if we're honest, let's just be honest. But you've probably done something, you've probably done things in your life, and you've probably thought, I wish that someone was there just to see me do that, or, you know, why weren't they there just at that moment? I really want them to be there. Uh, Maybe that's just me. (laughs) But do you know what? The Bible says, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, um, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So nothing is wasted. God sees and God knows and God remembers. Um, It says in Hebrews, it says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And so I just want to specifically speak to some of you uh, today who are ministering. And maybe today you're just feeling a bit, maybe you're just feeling a bit weary. Maybe you're just feeling, why, why am I always doing things at that church? It's driving me mad. <laughs> and, and it doesn't seem to be making any difference. I can't see any fruit from any of it, you know. Um, well, I just want to say to you who are serving, maybe you're serving the children, um, maybe you're just serving in the ushers. I want to say that God sees and God remembers and his eyes are in every place and he's going to reward you with a greater experience of himself. Amen. Amen. So let's just move on. Let's look at verses 5 to 15. And the second point really is that the reward of the Father belongs to those who pray in the secret place. The reward of the Father belongs to those who pray in the secret place. So it says in verse 5, When you pray, you will not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. It's very easy, isn't it, for public prayer to become a performance. I don't know whether you've heard about this idea of virtue signalling. Have you heard of virtue signalling? Um, it's something, it was a, sorry, to bore you with it. I don't know, I find these things interesting. But it was, virtue signalling was, was a phrase that was coined in about 2015. Um, and what it refers to is, you know when you're out socialising and someone says um, something, I'm, I could get into really uh, 
the example could get me to really um, hot water. Um, anyway, um, but say somebody says to you, I hate the Daily Mail. I'm not saying anything pro, for or against the Daily Mail. But what is, what is implied by that statement often is a lot deeper than the fact I just hate the Daily Mail. What's implied in that statement is the fact that I am a liberal, um, open-minded, tolerant person because I hate the Daily Mail. So we'll often drop these little, uh, you know, throwaway comments in what we say. And it's referred to as virtue signalling. Um, uh, and that's what people do. And the thing about virtue signalling is it doesn't cost anything. It's very easy to say you hate the Daily Mail. It's probably very difficult to actually do something practically about the refugee crisis, you know, like open your home or something, you know. But it's very easy to say something like, I hate the Daily Mail. But really what was going on here was a form of virtue signalling. It's, it's praying with a lot of very um, easy, cheap gestures which don't cost anything. It's very easy and very cheap, to be honest, to pray in church, isn't it? It's very easy when we're all gathered here. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of this. I often raise my hands in worship and sing, and we should do that. But it's very easy to do all those things. Um, but it's cheap. It doesn't necessarily... What does it really mean? Does it mean something deeper? And what Jesus is saying here is that there are a lot of people who were virtue signaling who were showing, giving off signs that they were very spiritual when they were in church by doing the things in that context that would have been considered religious. And to be honest, we have our own things in when we gather together as evangelical Christians, certain gest- gestures and, and um, customs that are considered very spiritual now. Um, but Jesus is really saying, he's not saying those things necessarily are wrong. He's certainly not saying it's wrong to pay in, pray in public because we know Um, in Acts and we know in the epistles that there's a huge emphasis on corporate prayer so we know corporate prayer isn't wrong but what's wrong is what Jesus is saying here is that they may be seen by men that the purpose of what you're doing is to be seen by men that it becomes a form of virtue signaling it becomes a form to show other people um, how spiritual you are what good Christian you are how much you know you love the Lord all that kind of stuff And Jesus is condemning that. Jesus is condemning that. Because public prayer doesn't cost much. What are you? What are you when you're in your home alone? What are you when there's nobody else there? Who are you? Who are you? I know that sounds ridiculous, but don't we all wear such such a, a huge number of masks in our lives? And to a certain extent, that's not an entirely bad thing because we have to wear masks in different areas of our lives. I couldn't really function as a GP if I didn't wear a mask to a certain extent. If I just said, well, this is how I'm feeling, I've had a bad day, and da, 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 I couldn't probably function and do my job. And so you probably find you need to wear masks to an extent you have to, and it's appropriate that you wear masks in different contexts. But what Jesus is saying is when all the masks are gone... And when there's nobody else to see you, and when it's just you and Jesus, who are you? What are you about? What are your desires? Is your heart for the Father, or is your heart for something else? That's what Jesus is saying. So we see again in verse 5b, Jesus says that the people who are like that, they've forfeited the Father's reward. They've lost the Father's reward. 
They have nothing in him. <clears throat> and let's just continue on. Um, I want to just talk uh, very briefly about um, verse 7. It says here, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. I want to ask you something. What do you think the difference is between prayer and witchcraft? Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. But what do you think the difference is between prayer and witchcraft? Well, witchcraft is any means that people use to try and effect or accomplish uh, changes in circumstances for their own benefit. And they do that by um, a variety of magical formulas and rituals. And it's really controlling circumstances for your own benefit. Now, witchcraft, of course, is much more than that. But at its fundamental essence, that is the spirit of witchcraft. The spirit of witchcraft is the spirit that would seek to manipulate or control uh, circumstances for our own benefit. That's basically what the spirit of witchcraft is. And in many pagan religions, that is what they are trying to do. Um, They are trying through the number of words that they use and through constant repetition and babbling, they are trying to bring about a change um, in circumstances, a change to benefit themselves. If you look at 1 Kings and verse 18, chapter 18 and verse 26, that's what the prophets of Baal were doing. It says that they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning till evening, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So nothing was working, so then they started to leap about the altar which they had made. But that kind of prayer, that kind of just continuously uh, repeating things in in a mechanical or a formulaic way to get God to do something for us, It's really not prayer at all. It's a form of witchcraft. What is prayer? What is prayer? Why do we even need to pray? Well, Jesus tells us that the Father knows the things that we have need of before we ask him. So we don't need to inform him. By the way, God, did you know that everything's gone wrong today? Can you do something about it? Um, You know, prayer really is bringing ourselves into alignment with God's will. That's what prayer is. We're bringing ourselves into alignment with God's will, God's purposes, God's priority, and God's agenda. So let's just look briefly, a few points here, at the, at the kind of prayer, the kind of prayer that is rewarded by the Father. So if we look at uh, verse 9, uh, it says, Um, prayer that is rewarded by the Father is reverent, but it is intimate. Both things are there, reverent yet intimate. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So there's both intimacy there and there's reverence. Sometimes I think we've lost the reverence. You know, we've lost the reverence in our churches today. Not entirely, but there is a way in which we've lost the reverence. We just kind of leap into God's presence without a thought, 
We're not really prepared. There's no idea that God is this sovereign judge who dwells in unapproachable light and we just jump into God's presence and we forget who we are and we forget who God is. I always remember going to a church. I'm not criticising children's songs, but I remember going to a church and you may think I'm being very pedantic and they had this song for the children and it said, God is good, God is great or something, God is fun and he's my mate. And I just thought, yes, God is our friend, you know, in a sense. But really, you know, this is, the, this is the creator of the universe we're talking about. You know, we have to remember that, yes, he's our father. Yes, he's daddy, he's Abba. But he is in heaven. He is in heaven. And we should revere him. And we should respect him. And he deserves all glory and all honour. And we mustn't be casual as we come into the presence of God. It says in 2 Timothy 6, verse 16, it says, Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. Unapproachable. Couldn't see God without it killing us in, in, in our natural human state. We couldn't see God without it seriously killing us. Um, you know, every person in the Bible who had an encounter with the presence of God, they often ended up face down. They often ended up face down. That's the God we worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. The name of God is not to just be tossed around. His name is holy. The way we use his name shows what we think of God. But um, as we move on, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The opposite to witchcraft. Rather than me trying to control everything for my own benefit, saying, God, it's about your kingdom. God, it's about your priorities. And I want to align myself to you. I want to align myself to you because I know that it's only in your will that I'm truly free. I know it's only in your will that I'm truly blessed. So actually, the best thing for me to do is to align myself into your hands. Sometimes when we pray, it's hard to know sometimes what to say when you pray, but sometimes the mo- you just sort of are there and say, well, you know, what do I say, what do I do? But sometimes we don't have to say a lot to God. To secure the blessing of the Father, sometimes all we have to do to God is say, God, I surrender to you, and then the blessing will come. God, I surrender to you. God, I'm taking down all of the barriers and all of the wall. I surrender to you. And as we bring ourselves into alignment with God's will, then the blessing of the Father comes. So aligning ourselves with God's will. It's God-centered prayer. God-centered prayer. Um, And verse 11, the other feature about prayer is that it's honest about our corporate needs. We can be honest. He's a loving Father. He wants to hear about our needs, not just my needs, but our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us the things that we need. Provide for us, Father. Provide for us physically and spiritually. Not just provide for me, but provide for the people who are close to me and provide for my church family the things that they need that will bless them, those things that they need that are essential. Provide for me, provide for them 
the things that we need. He's a loving father and he cares about that. Um, it's honest prayer. Sometimes we think when we pray, we have to kind of impress God, that we have to kind of just come across as so spiritual and, you know, God, I'm this and God, I'm that. And, you know, I worship. And it's right that we do all those things. But God also wants us to be honest, a heart cry of how we feel. We can be honest to God in prayer. Verse 12, it's key that we are seeking forgiveness from God and that we are willing to forgive others. Maybe the reason you're not experiencing the reward of the Father in your life is because you are gnarled up inside with bitterness and resentment against somebody. That could be something that's long-standing over many years. That could be something that's long-standing over many years. Sometimes I see people in the GP surgery and it's almost... I don't know this, I don't, I don't know people's hearts, but it's almost, in some cases, as so they're so twisted and contorted with their, their, their bitterness and their resentment against the things that have been done that it's actually come across in a physical sense in their body. The result of years and years and years of anger and resentment has come forth in their bodies. Um, not in all cases, of course I'm not saying that in all cases, but there are cases of that. There are cases of that. Um, And as we have that bitterness and as we have that forgiveness, we are closing the door. We are closing the door. We are closing the gates on experiencing the blessing of the Father. And so maybe today you just need to receive prayer from someone to release that. Jesus is assuming here that we've forgiven others their debts as we forgive our debtors. And then verse 13 um, is really... He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is really an earnest prayer to God for deliverance from evil in all of its forms. Deliverance from evil in all of its forms. The evil in my heart, my evil, my sin, the evil in the world around us, corporate evil, social evil, structural evil, and the demonic. It's a prayer to deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. So that is the kind of prayer that the Father rewards. That's the kind of prayer that the Father is seeking from us. And then verse 15 is an interesting one. Verse 15 is very interesting. Is this a condition for our forgiveness? It says there, if you do not forgive men their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So is Jesus kind of threatening us there and saying, if you don't forgive people, I'm not going to forgive you. But then you think, well, I always thought that forgiveness was by grace alone through faith alone. And so why is there this condition attached? Well, the key to understanding that is that the forgiveness there is not a condition, but it is a consequence. So if we are truly saved, if we are truly walking in accord with God's command, we're not going to want to harbour resentment. We're not going to want to harbour non-forgiveness. And, uh, and in that way, we will have the fellowship and the light of that presence with the Father. So, um, and just finally, on to our last section. We're looking at verses 16 to 18. And uh, we're coming on to, um, on to this area of fasting, uh, which is, 
is, is probably something which isn't a huge part of our, of our um, Western, certainly evangelical culture. Um, but fasting is something which is assumed, Jesus says, when you fast. So it is an assumed aspect of our, of our, of our Christian walks. Um, but I just want to say a word of caution about fasting. Like anything in the Christian life, we can take it to unhealthy extremes. And I would say that, that God does not, um, if you have had a history of um, an eating disorder, or if you have had a history of diabetes or other medical conditions, God is not commanding you to fast. And in your situation, the best thing may be for you not to fast. But for those of us who do not have such medical conditions or have uh, such um, you know, uh, psychological uh, issues with regard to these things, um, then there is a place for fasting uh, in the Christian walk. We have to be um, clear about that. The Bible talks repeatedly about fasting. Um, and the purpose of fasting is not to deprive yourself so much of food, but it's, it's to fill your hunger for more of Jesus. That is the purpose of fasting. Um, so, so really, we've got this idea here of when you fast. I just want to very, very briefly, I don't want to dwell on this, but I just want to very briefly talk to you about some of the biblical examples of, of fasting as to why why might you fast? Why, why might you decide to enter into a fast? Um, and people who have spoken about this would really suggest, uh, the way I would suggest, so you don't get carried away to an extreme really, is probably to enter into um, an occasional 24-hour fast. Um, enter into an occasional 24-hour fast um, in order to um, increase um, your experience of God and in order to um, be able to um, get more in touch with his heart. It's a very scriptural thing to do. But let's just look at some of the biblical examples of fasting. So first of all, you could fast to seek direction for important decisions in your life. It says in Acts 13 and verse 2, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So there was this juncture in the church and they were commissioning new leaders and there was going to be a change. Um, and it was as they were ministering and fasting to the Lord, as they'd set that time aside to fast to the Lord, that the Holy Spirit then says, separate, me, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The second uh, uh, example we have of fasting is um, praying in connection with spiritual warfare. Uh, we see that there is an occasion uh, when Jesus was discussing with the disciples and there was someone who was um, uh, subject to spiritual oppression. And Jesus said, this kind will not come out but by prayer and fasting. So there are particular seasons when people are under a very heavy spiritual oppression where, um, where fasting is required. Fasting can be a sign of repen repentance. Um, it says in Joel, it says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with weeping and fasting and mourning. Another, uh, another time would be when we are seeking physical or spiritual protection for some reason. For, for instance, maybe when we're going on a long journey. Um, it says in Ezra, it says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. 
So another, uh, another uh, example is you remember this godly woman, Anna, in the Bible. Do you remember Anna? She never left the temple of God. She was continually uh, in prayer and a part of that was fasting. And it says there was this woman of about 84 years old and she did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers day and night. We see Nehemiah fasting when, when it was coming to a time when the temple of Jerusalem around him was in ruins um, and he wondered what happened to God's purposes. And, and he was really fasting for restoration. Everything had collapsed around him and it seemed like God's purposes had failed. <clears throat> and Nehemiah says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And David, do you remember other times we might fast his desperate situations? Do you remember David when he lost his son because of his own sin and he pleaded with God and day and night he said, God, please um, don't take away my child. And it says David pleaded with God for the life of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So we do have to say that fasting is, is biblical it isn't laid upon us as an obligation in the New Testament, um, but it can be useful. And it can be useful in the sense of it is increasing our desire for the Father. It's saying we don't need so much more important to me. I mean, I'm someone who loves my food, actually. Um, so my, probably the highlight of my week is going to have a carvery, you know. Um, I just love it, to be honest. But, and so it's really hard. And to, if I'm very honest with you, I don't, fasting is not a huge part of my own spiritual uh, life. It just isn't. I have fasted on occasion, but not a lot. But I do think that it is biblical, and I do think that it is something that we should uh, consider doing as the Lord leads. Being careful not to take it to an unhealthy extreme. I would counsel you, um, as I say, if you've had any of those medical conditions, not to fast. But sometimes I think, why do we not do, why is fasting not at all a part of our, our Christian walk? Uh, John Piper said this He said, the absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. So sometimes we don't put that time into prayer, we don't put that time into giving or, or fast, all these other spiritual disciplines because we're just content not really to have much of Jesus in our lives at all. Not to have much of Jesus in our lives. But the issue with fasting is that because it's an external thing, it very soon has the propensity to um, become something which is external and to become something which other people see. And so Jesus says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. I I I assure I say to you, they have their reward. I don't know whether, looking back into church history, if you look at when um, monasticism first started, when you first got people deciding to become monks, They did some really funny things, a few of them. They did some really funny things. There was one guy called um, Simon Stylites, and he spent 40 years sitting on top of a pillar because he thought that it was more holy. And some of these people thought that having an absolute disregard for your physical appearance was a sign of your spirituality with God. So some of them wouldn't wash to the extent where there'd be insects crawling in their teeth. Can you imagine that? Um, And that was considered a sign of spirituality. That was considered a sign of spirituality. Imagine just coming to church. Imagine if I hadn't 
brush my teeth for you know several months or years, and I had these kind of maggots crawling out of my face. Um, I don't know whether you think I was spiritual or not, really. Um, but 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 Jesus denounces this kind of thing. Jesus denounces this kind of thing because he says that they have their reward in full. They've got what they wanted. They wanted people to think, aren't they spiritual? And that's what people thought. And they've lost the Father's reward. They've lost the Father's reward. They've lost the greater reward, the deeper reward, the more lasting reward. So, so that's really... Um, that's really what I wanted to, to speak to you about this morning. And it was just this idea of how do we, how do we go to a place where we're, where we're seeking the reward of the Father? How do we go to a place where we're, where we're seeking the Father himself? How do we go to a place where we're enjoying God and where we are satisfied in him above everything else? And Jesus gives us three practical things we can do. Giving, praying, and entering into an occasional fast. As we do those things, we will find that the Father is that precious treasure that we seek. It's the Father. The Father's reward is the Father. I just want to close with these words um, from Be Thou My Vision, that, that lovely hymn. And it says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Amen.